Tonight we are going to finish up Romans chapter 9 and get started on chapter 10. And we're, we're going to be talking some about, uh, really a lot about preaching from the, from the, the, preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. And, and we're going to talk tonight about what, uh, in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people got wrong. And it's, it's really an essential salvation issue that they were confused about in a large part. And we'll also talk about how the, uh, the Old Testament only makes sense through the light of Jesus Christ. You can't make sense of the Old Testament without Jesus, without the Messiah. Otherwise, it's all failed. It's, it's failed prophecy. It's failed anticipation. But, but through Christ, it becomes clear. I just realized you don't have the TVs on here. I'll turn those on for you, for the people that are here. So you can see the scriptures when they come up. Uh, we'll also get in tonight, we'll get into how Paul used the Old Testament because when when Paul... And, and, and many of the other New Testament authors, when they quote the, the Old Testament, oftentimes, uh, sometimes we expect them to quote a, a verse in a certain way, and, and then they use it a, a different way. So you read the quote, and then you go, oh, oh, I get what you're getting at. And then you go to the Old Testament passage to read what they quoted, and then you look at that and you go, I'm confused at how you're using this, this Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And so we'll talk about Paul's use of the Old Testament uh, and how it's, it maybe isn't what you thought it was on the surface, but it's actually the way he does it is really quite clever, and we'll look at that. But we'll pick it up in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 25. It says this, As indeed he says in Hosea, so he's quoting the Old Testament from the book of Hosea. He says, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And in the place where it's, it said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Now this is a sort of a complicated use of an Old Testament passage, so we're going to get right to the meat of it. This is a quote, as I said, from the prophet Hosea. Now if you remember, Hosea was the prophet who was told by God to marry a prostitute in, in order to have this have his life become like a 3D picture of God's relationship with Israel, so uh, the, the prostitute that he married was, was like Israel who had prostituted herself uh, with foreign gods and idolatry and ungodly things. And so, you know, and the picture is that God married Israel and Israel had cheated on God. So, uh, so this becomes a symbolic relationship of, of God with Israel. And, and the quote itself is from Hosea 1.10 and, and it's a prediction but, but what it predicts is where we sometimes get a little bit off. So we, we read it and we go, oh, okay, I, I will call those who were not my people my people. And we think, oh, this must be about God, going, how he's going to call the Gentile his people because the Gentiles were not God's people, but in Israel was God's people. So we say this is just a prophecy of how God's going to bring the Gentiles in. However, that's really not what this is in this situation. Actually, there is a prediction here, and it is a prediction about Israel, not about the Gentiles. Uh, in Hosea, God, God first says to his people Israel, he, says, he, he starts off by saying, you are no longer my people. He, he speaks of a, of a future time when he will once again call them his people. So, so he's, he's saying, Israel, you'll be disowned. Uh, and then you'll be brought back in. You'll be separated from me, but then you'll be brought in back in close to me. So, uh, and this this use like this, this is where the uh, Jewish anti-missionary, and, and there really are 
anti-missionaries, that's what they call themselves, and they respond to missionaries to Jewish people like, like the group Jews for Jesus or other groups like that. And what they do is they sort of anti-evangelize uh, their fellow Jewish people. So they, they would go around and they would say, let, let me tell you why those Jews for Jesus people are wrong and why Jesus is not the Messiah. And that's their goal to try to do that. So they'll respond to Hosea 10, 1.10 and Paul quoting that by saying, Paul, Paul is saying something like, uh, like, like this. And they'd say, ha, this is about Israel, not the Gentiles. And they say, Paul is using it to say that the Gentiles will become God's people. But that's not what this text means. Paul misused the Old Testament. However, the truth is, Paul is actually being far more clever than that. Uh, first, let me say, before we go any further, that, that the Gentiles is, is, will definitely be brought in uh, to become some of God's people. That's, that's part of the prophecy that was prophesied in many passages in the Old Testament, even though it's not here in Hosea. Uh, Hosea's point is, is something different. But, but let me give an example of a prophecy like that. Isaiah 49.6. He says, it is, a light thing that you should be, it is a light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations. That's the Gentiles. So that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So there are scripture that talk about that. Uh, and this, in Isaiah, that's a prophecy fulfilled uh, prophecy about the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus. So we do have Old Testament support for Gentiles being brought back in. But Paul's point here is really a little bit different. Paul, Paul's point is this. Think, think about the audience. Who is he trying to communicate to? This is a Jewish audience. And when he's quoting the Old Testament in the book of Romans, it seems as if he's quoting it with the Jew in mind to persuade them of the gospel truth. So it, it goes more like this. It, if Israel can go in, in the book of Isaiah, if Israel, or excuse me, Hosea, if Israel can go from being God's people to not God's people to once again becoming God's people, then he's saying there is a principle that we learn from Hosea. And the principle is that God can make not God's people, God's people. Now, why would he quote Hosea for this? He, would, he quotes Hosea because the, the Jew is going to say, God may have cast us off, but he can, he can bring us back. And, and that's a very nationalistic uh, thing that would be very appealing to the Jewish mind. And it's something they would receive very quickly. So he's, what he's doing is he's taking something that a Jewish per- person would be excited about. And he's applying it to a, to a broader principle about what God can do. He's not specifically talking about what God did at this point. He's talking about what it's possible for God to do to the Jewish mind. He's helping them see this. He's basically saying, if it can happen with the Jews, can it not also happen then with the Gentiles? So he's taking what they already agree with and he's moving them toward this gospel truth about the Gentiles. Would, would God cast Israel off forever? No, not forever. But just like in Hosea, God had set them aside for a time and for a purpose. And remember, he's talking about how Israel has been hardened for a time to the gospel. And so this is all part of that same argument that he's using uh, because what Paul is arguing is, is, that, is that what's happening in first century Israel right there with his fellow Jews is, is the same thing that happened in the Old Testament and it's just happening again. It's the same kind of principle. So 
So what is Paul's strategy here? Paul is using Old Testament examples to establish New Testament teachings and events. And he's trying to establish that they are biblically grounded. That's why he starts off earlier uh, in the chapter saying that the word of God has not failed. Earlier in chapter 9, he's like, hey, what's up? What what about the, the, the people of Israel? And he says... Oh, I, I wish they would, they were all would be saved, but, but he says, even though I wish that, know this, that the word of God has not failed in all the promises that he's made to them, even though they have not responded to the gospel yet. What, what's happening with Israel is, is not a failure of the word of God. And this, that's why Paul goes around in the book of Acts telling people how much he believes everything that's in the prophets, everything that's, that, that's in the, the books of Moses. He believes all of the Old Testament, all of the Jewish Bible, in fact, his point is, he believes this, and that's why he's a Christian. Because he believes the Old Testament so strongly, that's what le- leads him to, to believe in Christ. And, and now in ra- reality, modern-day Judaism does not believe all that is in, in the, 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 the Old Testament. Modern-day Judaism is something c- called rabbinic Judaism. And you might, you might be like, well, why do they call it rabbinic Judaism, not just Judaism? And the reason is because it's Judaism that's filtered through the teachings of the rabbis. And particularly those rabbis, uh, especially after the destruction of the temple in, in 70 AD, what they did was they sort of reimagined uh, Judaism uh, to fit a, a no temple no sacrificial system type of Judaism because the temple had been destroyed. So they had to try to see Judaism, Judaism in a new way. And that's how they've come up with rabbinic Judaism. So it's a tradition-based Judaism, not a, not a Judaism that's based on the Torah or what they would call the Tanakh, which is what we would call the Old Testament. So, so really in a strong sense, in a real, very real sense, modern-day rabbinic Jews are the ones who who are really not believing all that's, that's in the prophets. I mean, Daniel. Daniel himself prophesied that the Messiah was going to come before the destruction of the, of the temple. Well, Messianic Jews, or those Jews who have received Christ, they believe that. But, but rabbinic Jews will say, no, Messiah didn't come. And they, say, they would say that prophecy failed because we were disobedient. Or maybe, maybe the truth is Messiah did come and some people just didn't receive him. So that's Paul's strategy and I think he's really smart. And uh, he uses these strategic examples all throughout chapter 9. You know, some of the examples he gave, like if you remember like Pharaoh and those kind of things. Uh, think of this, I mean, he talks about God choosing Isaac and not Ishmael. And, and a Jew is very inclined to support that theology, right? That God chose Isaac, not Ishmael, because that makes them the chosen people. So they're going to agree with that. So they'd say, of course, God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And then he talks about God choosing Jacob and not Esau. And, and the Jews are very much inclined to support that because Jacob, who later became Israel, uh, that's, that's where we get our name as a nation. Uh, so of course, God chose Jacob and not Esau. Then, then, then he shows from the text that God didn't choose them based on their blood. That's what Isaac is about because there were other sons of Abraham, but the promise was only, only through Isaac. And then it talks about, uh, but it's also not only, uh, the, it, it's, it's not based on their blood, but it's also not based on their works because you had Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers. Brothers, God chose Jacob before he was born 
before he had a chance to do anything. That's how, that's how we know it was not of works because Jacob was born. He was chosen before he was born. And, and, and then Paul says, says, brings him along. He says uh, that, that salvation then ultimately is not fr- uh, from your blood or not from your works. So what he's doing all along, he's taking these naturally received ideas, things that are naturally received by the Jews, and he's saying this is New Testament teaching confirmed by Old Testament teaching. Um, and so uh, uh, I want to move, move forward from that. Uh, uh, you know, in essence, what he's doing, God, he's saying God is evening, uh, evening the playing field uh, between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to salvation. Because as he said, all Jews are condemned and, Genti- and all Gentiles are condemned, but all can be equally saved by faith in Christ through the grace that Jesus gives. That's the main point he's driving toward. But let's read on verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. So he's, he's quoting Isaiah speaking about Israel. He says, Though the number of the children of Israel be like the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a quick work upon the earth. And as Isaiah previously said, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. So this, this Old Testament passage, speaking from Isaiah chapter uh, 10, verses 23 through 23, speaks of the concept of a remnant. And this is actually a very consistent concept in the, in the Old Testament. Isaiah speaks about it. We see example in different books of the Bible where we see uh, a large number of Israel who are not following God, but then there's always a small number who, who are following God. And, and he's going to, Paul's going to carry this on into chapter 11. But the main deal is this, uh, uh, as we've mentioned even last week, many Jews would say, why would I believe in Jesus as Messiah when so many of my fellow Jews rejected him? So he's still answering that. Uh, to which he says, Basically, didn't the Old Testament say that it was really only a remnant of Israel that was faithful to God? He's saying, so that means you can't count the heads of how many Jews agree with you to find out if your theology is correct. You have to go to the text itself. There's a remnant, there's a minority, and the Old Testament supports the idea of this remnant. So so that answers the question, how could so many Jews be wrong? Because that was part of the, the argument. Well, the thing is, the book that, that this so many accept says that so many of them are wrong. All throughout history, so many of them have been wrong. So it's really a very clever way of using the Old Testament to confirm New Testament uh, teachings. And, and I just want to say, I, I believe that one of the greatest witnesses to Jewish people is the New Testament itself. It really is. If, if, if you separate the New Testament from the abuses that, that it's gone through historically, you know, the anti-Semites who have stood against scriptures and attacked the Jewish people in the name of the Bible, in the name of Christ. If you could just separate it from all of that, if you can uh, realize that those historical people are not representative of the, of the Bible itself, uh, be, because when you, when you read the Bible itself, you, you see hope for Israel and not this condemnation. But if you can do that, then what you'll realize is you'll realize that it's a Jewish book written by Jews. Uh, and it's written by Jews who believe the Old Testament uh, and have found the Messiah 
And what they're doing is they're trying to tell their fellow Jews about the Messiah using the Old Testament, showing the New Testament fulfillment uh, of all of this in Jesus. They're, they're believing all things written in the law of Moses. You know, so, I mean, example, I, I, I heard the testimony of one Jewish man who had been told by his family that the New Testament was nothing more than a handbook on how to persecute Jews. And so he was told, don't read it. And of course, you know, when you tell a young person, don't do this, what did it do? It created a curiosity inside of him. To, to, and he began to think, man, I really want to see what's in this. So he, he got a New Testament. He, he started it. He opened it up. He started to read that. And what, what did, where did he start? You know, when you, open, when you grab a book, you often start at the first. So he opened his New Testament to Matthew. And what does he see right off the bat? He sees a genealogy. Jesus the son of David. And he's thinking, wait a bit, wait a second. This is a Jewish book. So he read through it and he sees that Matthew is teaching about Jesus being the king of Israel the, and he, about being the son of David and that he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies. So, so he read through and realized that the New Testament, all of it was written by Jews, the whole thing. See, the truth is we're the visitors we're the visitors. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're the Gentiles that, that have been imported into this thing. The, the most natural thing in the world for, is for the Jew to come to Jesus, the Messiah. You know, and I just think it's the, it's the greatest witness to Jewish people uh, in the New Testament. The New Testament is the greatest witness as, as it will constantly confirm its teachings through the Old Testament, uh, which is often what we as Gentiles, we miss because we start with the New Testament, we tend to, and we miss completely the connection, all the threads that tie it together. Uh, but, uh, but, but a Jewish person uh, may not, you know, he, they probably won't miss that. They'll see those things. Um, so um, let's, let's continue. Verse 30. What shall we say then? What's the conclusion uh, that, that, that Paul is making here? What's his point? It says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not attain the law of righteousness. So this is a very sharp contrast. And the contrast here is that those who have attained righteousness, there are those who have attained righteousness because they got it by faith. And the contrast is there are others who did not attain righteousness because they tried to get it through the law. That's the contrast here. And, and you know, and, and, and this is a sharp contrast. It's contrast. And I love that the Bible's not afraid to make a sharp contrast. And, and, and I think if the Bible isn't afraid of making sharp contrast, then, you know, here's a little theory. Maybe preachers shouldn't be afraid of doing it either. You know, if I'm going to teach the Bible, then shouldn't I teach it the way that it teaches itself? Uh, shouldn't I stand as confident in the truth that it proclaims as the Bible is itself in those, in those truths uh, and, and not to be ashamed of those things? And, you know, I mean, I, I know that w when I teach on difficult, controversial subjects, things like, you know, homosexuality or Christ being the only way or things like sin or hell or, or any of those, those topics that in today's world are very controversial Oftentimes that causes pastors to get uncomfortable uh, when they approach those things. And you know, I tell you, if you, you want a pastor to get uncomfortable, all he has to do is start preaching about 
tithing or giving in the church because then you, you, you know, you, you get the church people mad at you then, which by the way, I'll just throw this in as a side note. I, I figured out a long time ago, the only ones that get upset when I preach about tithing are the people who don't tithe, but that's a whole different story altogether. Uh, but, but I, I feel like in those situations, in difficult, controversial subjects that the Bible deals with, that I owe it to the Lord to teach those things without compromise. Uh, just, just to say, these are the facts and people need to know these facts. So, so you know, I think as a principle, I shouldn't be afraid of those things. And, and neither should you as a Christian. You shouldn't be afraid of that. It's just the way it is. So let's get back to this sharp contrast. What's the sharp contrast? There are Gentiles that get righteous by faith, he says, and they're not even trying. They're not even trying. What? That's not fair. Exactly. That's the point. That's the point. It's not about fair. It's about grace. They're getting righteous by faith. They're they're not trying to get righteous through any pursuit of their own. They're just simply trusting Christ. And the contrast is that Israel, now now not all of Israel, and Paul will talk about this later, I mean, Paul himself is a Jew. Almost, almost all the first believers were Jewish. At, at Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, they were all Jews coming to Jesus. So it's, it's not all of Israel, but it's a large part of Israel. Where did they fail? Israel failed in that they ran after righteousness through the law of righteousness. They, they tried to be righteous through obedience to the law, whereas the Gentiles were living sinful lives, they heard the gospel, they put their faith in Christ, and they got righteousness given to them. There, there was no inter, intermediary uh, uh, that the law, you know, of the law getting in on that. The, it, it, but the Jews, it says, they have not attained to the light, the, the, excuse me, have not attained to the law of righteousness. And what that means is they haven't reached it. They're not really even obeying the law. Now, now, when, when you say something like that, to this, you know, let's say a Jewish person is hearing me uh, and, and, and they may be like, Dave, you're, you're really being foolish. I worked so hard to observe all the traditions of my people. I, I worked so hard to be a faithful Jew. Everything from the clothes I wear to the way I wash my hands to the food I eat to the things I do on the Sabbath. I do all of these things to obey the law. Well, my point is, it is not that they haven't pursued the law. The text is saying that they haven't successfully attained to it. Though the pursuit is real, they have not met their goal. And some might say in response, yes, I have. Yes, I have. However, factually, they haven't. Romans has dealt with this already. All have sinned. He goes, you boast in the law, but you dishonor God by breaking the law. So, so, and, you know, Jesus went to great pains, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but he, he went through great pains to try to point this out to people during his ministry on, on earth. He said the, the law is a, is a little better than you think it is, and that's why you think you've attained to it. However, he said if you look a little more carefully into it, you'll realize that you aren't doing so well. so well. You have failed quite a bit. Because nobody fully obeys the law. And that's what Romans has taught all the way through so far very consistently. And the reason they haven't found righteousness is because they're seeking it through their own works instead of seeking it through faith in what Christ has done. Let's continue to verse 32. 
He says, why not? Why are they not getting this righteousness? It says, because they did not seek it by faith. Now, remember how hard he, he labored. He labored hard to show us that Abraham was saved by what? Faith. Abraham, the father of the Jews, was saved by faith. Then he says, but you guys, he said, you Jews, the children of Abraham, you're trying to be saved by works. The father of the Jews was saved by faith, and you're trying to be saved by work, works. He, 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 they misunderstood the purpose of the law. The, the law is good. The law is wonderful, but, but, you're, but you're not, you're, you're not going to work this system, so to speak, to earn righteousness. He's saying that the law should be driving you to Jesus. I mean, after the law was given, immediately afterwards, they, they had to have a whole bunch of sacrifices and, and the Levitical priesthood was, was put into place. It was needed. Why did they need all of those things? It's because you've all failed. That's what, that's the point. And then Jesus comes and fulfills all those things. Let's, let's start again. Verse 32. Why not? Because they did not seek it by faith, but by the works of the law. For they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And he introduces this new idea of the stumbling stone. But, it, but the truth is, it's not a new idea to the person who knows the Old Testament. And then he quotes the, old, the scripture here. He says, that is, at verse 33, as it is written, Look, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. So the question is why, in verse 32, why are the Jews failing? I mean, look how hard we're working. And let's face it, the Jews were working a lot harder to be pleasing to God than the Gentiles were. A lot harder. Why are they failing? And he says they're failing because they didn't do it by faith. They were missing faith. Instead, they were trying to be righteous by works. Now, now, now this, this actually you know, brings to my mind one of the differences between Christianity and pretty much every other religious system that's out there. If you have a salvation through work system, then you have unrighteousness. You're trying to attain righteousness through your good works, and that's just not going to work. You know, in, in Mormonism, for example, the, the way I see it in the teachings of, their, of that church, the, the whole merits and works for salvation thing, in that you don't have the gospel of Jesus. You're not gaining righteousness because you're not seeking it by faith. You're seeking it by faith plus this and this plus this plus this. Anytime you say plus this, then you're not seeking it by faith. You're adding works to the whole system. In other words, it's not by faith. And this is where we draw a big difference between Mormonism and different uh, divisions of Christianity, say, you know, Calvinism. In the last several weeks, I've talked a lot about Calvinism. But, uh, but the truth is, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. They are righteous by faith. They have the gospel down solid. In my opinion, there's no real difference, no significant difference. There are differences between how we reconcile free will and sovereignty. But, but we agree that the gospel is salvation by faith alone apart from works. However, a Mormon person who actually believes Mormon theology, Mormon doctrine, and there are a lot of Mormons who don't even know what is taught in Mormon literature. They have never really read it all. They don't even know it. And then they get mad when someone teaches against it, but they're not even sure what they're talking about because they don't know the difference between the biblical gospel and the Mormon gospel. But I would say... We have to draw these distinctions. And here's the, here's the line in the sand that we have to draw. 
you know, I will offer a great fellowship, and you should too, between uh, Calvinists and Arminians. Now, we, we would fall under Arminian, and it's not Armenian with an E, it's Arminian with an I, as in the, the teachings of Arminius. Uh, and those are, those are the two different uh, schools of thought and theology, two main, uh, the major ones. Uh, we can have great fellowship between Pentecostals and those who believe that the gifts have ceased. Uh, between all these different groups, we can have fellowship because we have common ground in our faith and our, in our salvation by faith alone through Christ. You bring them all together because we're all under the umbrella of the gospel of Christ. However, Wherever, where, where you deny salvation by faith alone, now you are not under that umbrella. You are outside of that. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying, is, is saying here. They tried to get righteousness and they never attained it. And I, I think this example is clear in Judaism because Judaism has a, has a true high standard in the actual law of the Old Testament. They have a very high standard. You know, some other religious uh, groups have much lower standards than Judaism. You know, uh, it's like, uh, you know, you talk about Catholicism. A number of years ago, the, the, the Pope was going to declare a special year of indulgences. This, this is a true story. He was going to declare a special year of indulgences. If you don't know what an indulgence is, that's where uh, the, uh, the, the Pope or, or someone can give you the right to do whatever you want and you'll be forgiven. And, uh, and he, he was going to offer it. If you would go to one of the places where he was going to be teaching in person, and if you, if you would go there, then you would get a special plenary indulgence uh, to get forgiveness of your sins or someone else's sins, depending on how you wanted to, to use it. So you get this forgiveness. You earn it by attending these events, by going to these events. But he decided he wanted to make it really easy. Uh, and, he's, and, he, and he said that if you follow him on Twitter, Twitter you can get this, which is almost... It's almost, if it wasn't sad, it's almost, it'd be funny, you know, but, but you have to follow with all your heart on Twitter, that's for sure. But uh, the thing is, to those who realize that Jesus had to die on a cross to pay for my sins, that, that just seems pathetic compared to the, the death and sacrifice of Christ, you know, that I would look to my Twitter following as somehow earning some sort of grace or forgiveness. It's really, really sad. But, but let's look at how Paul is quoting this passage because in verse 33, he actually quotes two different passages in Isaiah. And he does this sort of rabbi thing that, that they often did back then. And he, he literally combines two passages together. And, and I think there's good reason for it. Let me just read the passages. They're Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16. Those are the two verses that he quotes. Isaiah 8.14 says, he shall become a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now the he in this passage where it says he shall become seems to be referring to God. That's how I read the text. God, so it's God will be like a sanctuary, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So, 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 so there's this contract. He's, he's going to be a sanctuary or he's going to be a rock of offense, one or the other. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, See, I lay in Zion a stone, a, precious, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, firmly placed. He who believes shall not act hastily. So Paul seems to be combining these two verses, these two passages, and he's saying, Hey, the sanctuary and the stone 
are the same thing. And the belief is belief in him. So he's, God is laying himself as the sanctuary and the stone in both situations. Now, John, John chapter 1 says that Jesus came and it, it literally says he tabernacled amongst us. So he became that. He, and he de- deliberately confuses the idea of the temple and his own body. Remember when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again? And he, he's saying this in a way that they think he's talking about the temple, but he's really talking about his body. So he, he deliberately confuses those. He purposely mixes the two, I think, to draw us into these analogies. So Paul is saying that the stone in Isaiah twenty six sixteen is the he of Isaiah eight fourteen. And that's why he quotes it this way. He says, he said, look, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Whoever believes in him, he ties the he to it, will not be ashamed. That's the correlation. Um, uh, let me skip ahead. I've got a lot. I, I'm gonna, if, I, if I try to give you everything here, we, we won't, we'll never finish tonight. But let's, let's look at Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. You know what? I don't think Paul was in the habit of praying pointless prayers. You know, it said that he prayed three times for the thorn to be removed from his flesh and you remember, God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, did Paul keep praying for that after that? No. He just prayed three times. And when God told him he wasn't going to do it, he stopped praying for that. So he, did, he didn't pray pointless prayers. So why is he still praying for Israel to be saved if they've been hardened? Again, he's praying for them because hardening, as we said last week, is not necessarily permanent. And we're going to get into that. He's going to get into this more later on where he makes it very clear that the hardening of Israel is not permanent because God has a plan to bring them back in and graft them back in. He's still praying for their salvation because their salvation is still entirely possible. You know, many of you uh, maybe at one point had a hard heart and, and you came to the Lord after that. You know, this is not just a token prayer. I think it's an example for us to pray for people who seem hard. Anybody know somebody that's, that seems like they have a hard heart? You know somebody that's been hardened? Well, we, this is an example for us to continue to pray for them. We have to battle against the deception that our prayers are not effective or not important or they're not, or they're not worth praying. I mean, why do you think the enemy would want us want so badly for you to stop praying? I actually find that encouraging when I pray. Prayers, your prayers are important. I mean, I want to give you an example of this. In Acts 18, we're told how, how Paul goes to the city of Corinth and he's preaching the gospel there. And after some time, you know, the, 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 he always started in, with the Jews first and he would go to the synagogue. And after some time of preaching there, they kick him out of the synagogue. But the, but the ruler of the synagogue, a man named Crispus, gets saved. And his entire household comes to Jesus. They become what we would refer to as Messianic Jews. And so, then, so they kick, out, kick Paul and Crispus out of the synagogue. And then they, they, they get a new ruler for the synagogue. And his name is Sosthenes. He's the new ruler of the synagogue. And then they try to get Paul in, in a lot of trouble. 
But then if you read the story, the, their plan totally fails because God's on their side. And if you remember, from, if you've read it before, Sosthenes ends up getting beaten by a gang of people as a result of him trying to get Paul and his companions beaten by a gang of people. So, so he's the replacement ruler of the synagogue who heard Paul speak. He hardened his heart. He rejected Jesus. And then later, when Paul writes a, a, a letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.1, he says to them, this is Paul writing to you and Sosthenes, our brother. This guy got saved. And he ended up traveling with Paul later on. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and Sosthenes is the only person that Paul mentions by name. Why? Because he's known by those people. Now he's saved and he's traveling with Paul to spread the gospel. Can a hardened heart still come to Jesus? Yes. Yes. And really, truthfully, that's every heart to a certain degree. And I take great courage in that. Let's read on. Romans 10.2 For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God. You know, there are people out there who do not care about God. They blow off the gospel. They, they say things like, I'll deal with it when I die, which, which is really smart, right? You know, I'll deal with this idea of salvation after I die when it's too late. You know, as I, I heard about a pastor who was talking with a man who, and he was sharing the gospel with him and he shared the scripture with this man and he shared some apologetics with the man, which is just the defending, defending the faith and talked with him about why he believed it was true. And that man looked at the pastor and he, he said to him at the end of all of this, this conversation, he said, I don't care if it's true. He said, I just want to live my life. I, I, want to be, I just want to be a good dad to my kids. And the pastor said, well, do you think you're being a good dad if you're not leading your kids to the Lord in truth? Is your example of rejecting Jesus being a good dad? And the man said, I don't care. And that was the end of it. Talk about hardened. And that's not a zeal for God, right? There are many people who have apathy towards God, who who push off spiritual issues and ignore them until the last minute and they will not engage in spiritual conversations about these things. They, they would never come to a Bible study like this, that's for sure. They would never watch a Bible study video like this that's, that's so long. However, the flip side of that is there are some people who have a great zeal for God, yet they're still not saved. That's what the text says, isn't it? Talking about the Jews, he said they have a zeal for God, but they're not saved. These are religiously devoted people. You know, many of the Jewish people of Paul's time were zealous for God. They had a zeal. They, they were serious about him. Have you ever heard of somebody say, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. This is, this is a direct refutation of that, very, of that statement. You know, but the Jews of that day, if you met them, you would, you would just be amazed. You'd say, look at their lives. Look at their obedience. It's like in the fourth book of Maccabees, there's, there's this amazing incident. Eleazar the priest uh, was brought before Antiochus Epiphanes, whose aim was, he, he was trying to stamp out the Jewish religion. And Antiochus ordered this Jewish priest to eat pork. And, and the old man refused. He said, and, and, and they, he said, if, if you 
pluck out my eyes and consume my bowels in the fire. We, O Antiochus, he said, we who live under a divine law consider no compulsion to be so forcible as obedience to our law. And he was ordered to be beaten and, uh, and, and he, was, he was beaten with whips and his flesh was torn off with his whips and his blood streamed down and he fell and a soldier kicked him. In the end, the soldiers uh, so pitied him that they brought him some meat that had been cooked, uh, but, but it was not pork. And they told him, eat this and just say that, you, that you've eaten pork. But he refused and he, and he was killed in the end. And what was that all about? It was about eating pork. You talk about zeal. You can have a consuming zeal for God and still not be saved. Is your zeal enough to save you? The answer is clearly no. God doesn't forgive people because they're passionate. My, my passion does not save me for anything. That's why I think Paul in Romans 9.16 makes a point of saying that the gospel of salvation and the election of God is not of him who wills. Oh, there was a will. There's a strong zeal amongst many of the Jewish people, but salvation is not from that. It's not of him who wills. So the problem is given to us in verse 2. He said they have a zeal for God, but their zeal is not according to knowledge. And if, I, if I could summarize that statement in, in my vernacular, I would say their theology is wrong. Specifically, their theology of, was wrong about uh, when it comes to how they get saved. Their, their gospel message was incorrect. They had a zeal, but they had a false gospel. They had knowledge of the true God. That's what's amazing. They had knowledge of the true God. But they had a false gospel, so they were not saved. And this can be said of Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and many Jewish people, many Catholic people, many people who are involved in a works-based salvation system for salvation. They might have a real zeal for God, but not have salvation because they have a false gospel. In their zeal, they're, they're presenting their works. As the Bible would say, they're filthy rags to God as, as though they are righteous and they're ignoring the righteousness of Jesus who died on their behalf. I mean, this is, this is pretty heavy stuff. Verse 3, for being ignorant of God's righteousness. So this is what they were lacking knowledge about, God's righteousness. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness they did not submit to the righteousness of God. What they were unaware of is God's righteousness. So th this is a perfect description of the, of the lowered standards people have when they have legalism. And I mean actual legalism, not just when you tell people things like you probably shouldn't cuss, you know. You, you say, well, doesn't the Bible say we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have foul language and coarse joking? And somebody who says, that's legalism. That's legalism. No, that's not legalism. That's called morality. That's a whole different thing. Because there's some people that say, if you say anything is wrong, then you're being legalistic. And that's not what legalism at all is at all. Legalism is where I try to use my goodness to, in order to attain righteousness or my works to attain righteousness or what I do to, to get saved. Um, before God. So in, in other words, it's a works-based salvation. That's legalism. And Jesus worked really hard to try to show people that in their legalism, 
they actually ignored God's actual standards. So follow with me for a second as we look at some of Jesus' teaching and we think about this message that Paul is giving, how they were ignorant of God's righteousness. How did Jesus bring this to the Jewish people? Look at Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus gets on the Pharisees and the scribes who are leaders of the people, he, not because they're too strict, too strict. Get this, this is really important. It wasn't because they were too strict. Jesus gets on them because they were not strict enough. This is different than what we sometimes understand. We tend to think the Pharisees had too many rules. No, the problem wasn't too many rules. The problem was not the right kind of rules. They didn't have heart rules that God wanted. Look at Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier manners, matters of the, of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So he's not saying that the first part is wrong. He's saying that's, that's fine, but you're ignoring the bigger part of it. And this is, you know, we read this is where a lot of pastors mock the scribes and Pharisees for tithing their mint and dill and cumin. But you know, I think that could be a glorious act of love to God. I mean, I'm tithing everything to God. Why? Because I love God. Tithing everything. Is, is that wrong? Is that something that should be not mocked? No, I don't think so. However, in doing this, in spending time dealing with the mint and the dill and the cumin and, and, and this and that, what happened is they now said, now I feel that I've accomplished God's will. Now I feel pretty good about myself, but I'm neglecting what? I'm neglecting justice and mercy and faith. These ama amazing character traits that God wants me to have. I'm focused instead on these activities that I do instead of focusing on the character of who I am. He goes on to verse 24. You, you blind guides who... Strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, that's a fancy trick if you can do it, but he's using hyperbole to make his point. He says, you strain out a gnat, and that's good. That's nice. Listen, it's not, it's not a bad thing to strain out a gnat. If I'm drinking something and there's a gnat there, I want to strain the gnat out, right? That's a good thing. He's not saying that you shouldn't be straining the gnat. Uh, but he says, you strained out a gnat. You were worried about the gnat, but in the process, you swallowed a camel. You're missing the point. Verse 25, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and greed. Now, so their method of lowering God's standards was to focus on trivial things rather than, than focusing on the heart of God's holiness. And I think this is what Jesus is trying to get across to them. You focused on the, these trivial things. You're focused on making sure that you obey certain rules, but you've neglected the deepest character issues of holiness to which God has called you. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's going through the same process. He's trying to restore an awareness of the deeper issues of the law and the deeper issues of God's holiness. I'm going to read from uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We'll, we'll, just start, we'll just read verses 19 and 20. He says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do likewise shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, those people would hear that 
And they would look at the scribes and Pharisees and they would think, well, these guys are pretty stinking righteous. And Jesus would say, yes, but they're not nearly righteous enough because God has a much higher calling than the things that they're focusing on. Then he gets into these, you've heard it said, but I tell you statements in the Sermon on the Mount. You know those? Talks about anger and lust and divorce and taking of oaths and lowering, uh, loving your enemies. And he, he shows that all of these are part of, of the Old Testament, teaching the Old Testament law. And he says, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say that if you call your brother a fool, if you're angry against him in your heart, you committed murder in your heart. He, he said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you look with lust at someone, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He says, don't you realize that God is looking at more than just your outward acts in, in following these rules? He says, he, he, God wants you to follow these rules from the inside out. Cleanse the inside of the cup, he says. Six times in Leviticus, God tells his people, be holy for I am holy. Now that tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us God is calling us to be holy, not just to be good. There's a difference. Second, he tells us this, and this is the hard one. He's calling you to be holy the way he is holy which is way beyond anything that's reachable by mankind. That's the standard. The standard is above and beyond what we can reach, that's for sure. That's why I said in Romans 2.23, you make your boast in the law, yet you dishonor God by breaking the law. You're condemning yourself. You say that the law is true and good, but then you don't really follow it from the heart, from the inside out. See, the law is like this mirror that's supposed to be something into which you gaze, and then it shows you, your flaws. But in reality, it's, it's like those mirrors that enlarge your face. How many of you uh, know what I'm talking about? Have you seen those mirrors? We have one in our, in our, our bathroom at home, our master bathroom, you know, where on one side it's just normal. And then you, then you flip the mirror over and all of a sudden you look at it and said, oh my goodness, look how gigantic my pores are. You know, it just kind of freaks you out. All your flaws are magnified and you can see it clearly. The problem is instead of allowing uh, the law to be a true mirror that really gazes into the heart of man, what we do and what they were doing is that people, some people try to use their religion sort of like these phone apps that try to make you look cute. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen these filters that people use on Snapchat or Instagram or TikTok, these sort of things. And, uh, and you look at those pictures and you're like, that person does not look like that. You know, it might be, sometimes it's obvious, like they got animal ears or, you know, their, their eyeballs are huge or they're glowing or something like that. You know, and I, I look at those and I'm wondering to myself, I wonder how many pictures they actually took before they decided to post one of those things. But, but I, I think some people use religion like this. Some people reflect a false image to themselves through their religion. They say, well, I look good by these standards, the standards of my religion. But the problem is those are a lot lower than God's standards. So it reflects a false image. And that's what they were doing instead of seeing a true image of themselves uh, through a real gazing of the law. So that's what the, this, the thing that... That, that God is trying to get across to them. Um, let's, let's skip down to verse 4. I need to hurry along. Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, this is truly good news. You see, if the law is the only way to get to God, if the law is my only way to uh, get righteousness, if that's the only way we can do it, 
then we're all going to hell. If that's the only way. We need an end to the law as our righteousness. And that's what Jesus is. And it says Jesus is the end of the law unto righteousness. Now he's not saying he's the end of the law, period. End of story. And you know, it's not to say that a Messianic Jew can't follow the, the law because they certainly can, but they're not doing it for righteousness, to earn righteousness. Uh, you know, and, and you know, along those lines, it's, it's, uh, some people will sometimes become enamored by Jewish law or traditions, like if you start studying Judaism and Jewishness, you know, maybe you start looking at the Passover, we can sometimes learn about a Jewish tradition and begin to think that because it's a Jewish tradition, that it's somehow really close to Scripture. For example, you know, if you do a Passover meal based solely on what the Scripture says, what you're going to find is it's going to be far, much, much less involved uh, in that than what a traditional Passover meal would have. Uh, but, but Jesus, he warned against elevating these traditions. So we, we want to have wisdom with them. It, don't think something is bad because it's tradition, but don't think something is good because it's tradition. Weigh it, measure it, give it some thought. However, it is definite that the law is not to be obeyed for righteousness. I cannot gain righteousness by my own works in keeping the law. We get our righteousness through faith in Jesus. End of story. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness, righteousness which is based on the law. The man who does these things shall live him. And this is live by them. This is a repeated concept in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So the point is, here is, if a man does them, he will live by them. If he doesn't, he will die. And the law taught us a lesson because we failed, we failed, we failed, we failed. I mean, just look at Israel's historical failures throughout the Old Testament. Now, again, the Gentiles failed. That's already been settled. We know that they already failed. But the Jews who received the law also failed. You know, you, you read about it all throughout the Old Testament. Look at the book of Judges. I'm not going to take a lot of time, but Judges, is, it gets depressing the closer you get to the end of the book. You know, because it's always, it's, it's this over and over where Israel uh, sins, you know, they fall into idolatry or something, and then God sends a nation in to judge them. Then he lifts, raises up a deliverer to set them free and does this over and over and over again. But if you read the book, by the time, it's not like the, the process is, is, you know, like here going steady across like this, but it's just continually downhill the whole way, just downward uh, progression. And eventually northern Israel gets uh, being ended up being taken out of the land, and then later southern Israel ends up having their temple destroyed and being driven from the land. It's really very sad. But so God's solution in the book of Jeremiah to all of this problem is that there's a day coming in the future when God will make a new covenant, and instead of writing it on these this covenant on the tablets of stone, He's going to write it on their hearts. And that's what Jesus came and fulfilled. That's why He said at the Last Supper, "This is the new covenant in My blood." Um, and you can see this all through Scripture. Let's, let's hurry. Verse 6. But the righteousness which is based on faith says, not the righteousness that is based on works, but the righteousness which is based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. This is the word of faith that we preach. Now, this is again a passage where if you're going to go to the Old Testament, you'll go 
is Paul misquoting this the way that I think he is? Uh, So let's look at it for a second. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. This is the passage that Paul is quoting. It says, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up for us to heaven and bring it to us, so that we may hear it and do it? It is not beyond the sea, so that you should say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us, so that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may do it. Now this, this is written about the law. Not about the Messiah here. So some might say Paul is misquoting it because he's talking about Messiah, but Deuteronomy is talking about the law. But really what Paul is doing is that he's offering a picture that as God gave the law to Israel, so now God has given Messiah to Israel. As God provided the law, he, he's provided Messiah. So uh, he, he's drawing together these different threads so he's not saying this is about Messiah at all. That's not his point. He's saying that this, this passage is a pattern that God follows, not only in the giving of the law, but also in the giving of, of Messiah. So, so with the law, he, he says, he, in giving the law, God tells the people, you need to do this work, you need to do these things, you need to obey this law. And, and in Deuteronomy, he says, don't act like it's far off somewhere and you don't know anything uh, don't act like you have to go find it and figure out what I, what I want you to do. He says, no, I've given it to you. I've given it to you. Don't say, act like it's way over there. Uh, I've already accomplished it for you. I've given it to you. And that's the same thing. So it is with the giving of Jesus. It's, it's like, don't be like, how will I know? What do I have to do? And make all these excuses about Jesus as if he didn't come down from heaven, as, as, as if he didn't die for your sins. He's already accomplished it for you, so receive these things by faith. The point is, he's he's drawing this parallel analogy. In the same way that God provided the law, which you failed, he provided the gospel, which is not based on your performance. So his point is, in the same way he told the people of Israel, I gave you the law, so you're without excuse. Don't say, I got to go figure out what I need to do. And now he's saying, in the same way, God gave us the Messiah. So we don't have to go try to figure out how to get saved. It's right there. Receive it by faith. And before we end our time tonight, let's look at verse 9. It says this. And and by the way, you tie it together. He he says at the end of that verse, he said, But the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may do it. Um, uh, Excuse me, that that was Deuteronomy. He said, he said, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Then he says, this is the word of faith that we preach. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This, this is the culmination of all of this that he's been that he's been preaching and teaching and trying to explain, saying it's not by works, it's not that you're uh, a Jew uh, by blood. He's saying, how do you get saved? It's by confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Messiah, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You know, I love both the complexity and the simplicity that we have here because there's a really deep, this, this whole thing is a very deep, a uh, complex explanation of the gospel when you really get into the details of it all. However, in the end, he says, confess with your mouth, mouth and believe in your heart. 
You know, this is one of the most commonly used verses for preaching the gospel to people because it is the simplified conclusion from all of the complexity. The gospel is ultimately so simple that anybody can get it. Yet, for those who wish to engage their minds, you'll find a beautiful complexity within the intricacies of the Old Testament and the New Testament being married together in Christ. And it's just beautiful. But what's the message? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. It means you believe that Jesus is Lord. Not the, not the bro Jesus. You know, not Jesus is my boyfriend kind of thing. But he needs to be your Lord. Your, 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 your boss, your controller, your master. So I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. And this shows us that the resurrection of, the, of Jesus is an essential gospel truth. And it ends up being oftentimes how you can tell true believers from non-believers. Do you really believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead? Yes, that's one indicator of a genuine faith, the resurrection of Jesus, and that's it. So what do I have to do then other than that? That's it. It's the whole point. His point is your do is not going to help you. What you need is God's righteousness gifted to you through Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, how do I do that? Well, you just literally confess with your mouth. Confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. You say, Jesus, you are my Lord. And you are Lord over everything. And that means I'm turning from sin and I'm turning to Christ. And that's, that's repentance and, and faith summarized in one powerful little phrase. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Jesus, you have done it all for me. I'm just turning my life over to you. You're taking care of it. End of story. That's the message. That's the message. Now we'll get more into this uh, uh, next week and we're, we're going to talk about the, this gospel message, how it's been challenged by this question. We're going to talk next week some about what about people who have never heard the gospel? Ever heard that, that uh, question asked before of somebody who is a skeptic? Well, we're going to talk some about that. Paul's going to get into these details as we continue through Romans 10. But let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we confess that, that Jesus is our Lord. He is our Lord. Our lives belong to Him. Our hearts are submitted to Him. He is Lord. And we believe in our hearts that, that you raised Him from the dead. And, and, and by this, we are saved. By just believing in the one who has done everything for us. You, Jesus, you suffered for our sins. You died on the cross. You rose again from the dead. And Lord, we thank you for the complexity. But we thank you even more for the simplicity. Remind us of these things. Help us to be prepared to share the simplicity of the gospel with someone this week. And Lord, we, we pray for those opportunities. We, we pray, Lord, that we would be those who would be a mouthpiece for Jesus. 
And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.